because it's corporate power that people know instinctually that the political system is captured, but they don't know how and they don't know by whom. And for me, the answer is simple. It's the corporations. They own the whole show now. That's what we're up against. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is the journalist Matt Kennard. Matt is the co-founder of Declassified UK, a news website that concentrates on military and foreign policy. Whilst a fellow at the Centre for Investigative Journalism, Matt and his colleague Claire Provost uncovered a shadow legal system used by corporations around the world to strong-arm governments into watering down their policies. Their investigation led to them writing the book Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. Matt joins me today to explain what they found. How the decolonization movement of the 50s and 60s ensured that imperial powers could no longer use armed forces and violence in order to extract resources from nations. No, they had to get creative. So they created an entire legal system that would allow corporations to sue governments for blocking access to national resources and for impacting bottom lines. This ensured that the private sector in the West has an almost unmitigated access to foreign resources impeaching development, impeaching national sovereignty, and impeaching political autonomy. It means that fossil fuel companies are suing national governments who wish to enact environmental laws. It means that mining companies sue governments who wish to nationalize industries. It means that even the Eurostar can sue the governments of Britain and France for the refugee crisis in Calais. This is the legal system that nobody is talking about that ensures national interests have been captured by corporate interests. States create policies around the interests of corporations and the governments who dare stand up to those corporate interests are taken to court in a back room of the World Bank in Washington, losing millions in the process of legal fees and often billions when they lose their case, ensuring that capitalism can sink its teeth into every corner of the world, especially in the places that dare stand up and dream of a different world order. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content. So Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Matt, thanks very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So my first question is, why is the world in crisis and what can we do about it? Well, there's obviously a confluence of different factors as to why the world's in crisis. But I think one of the main ones um, and the one that I've been kind of studying for the last decade really is um, that democracy has been destroyed or the few democratic structures that did exist at some point have been destroyed by the overweening power of corporations. Um, and this has been a conscious effort um, from the corporate sector, which has obviously been around for hundreds of years, but has grown exponentially in, growth, in, in power since particularly the Second World War. Um, and they've now, in my opinion, completely colonized the state which created it and made it impossible for corp for states and governments in so-called democratic societies to act in the inter interests of their citizenry. Um, there's two sides to that. One is that corporations are now in massively powerful themselves, but there's also the nominal power of governments, which obviously still exists, but is often exerted and, uh, and projected in the interests of corporations as well. Even though it appears it's a government decision, those decisions are being made in the interests of corporations. And we recently published a book called Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. And, and what we tried to do was try and look how, uh, how these kind of hidden 
um, and um, quietly um, practiced systems um, were erected and how they operate today. Um, so I think, yeah, to answer your questions, I think that we need a democratic society uh, with an informed citizenry to take on the crises which we have. The main one is obviously climate change, but the other one is uh, the potential for nuclear war with, uh, with, with Ukraine um, and the fact we've, we've got nuclear weapons uh, being held by, count, well, countless. We don't, we don't know 100% how many have them, but uh, enough to, there's enough nuclear weapons. We have enough in the UK, actually, to destroy the whole of the world, effectively. Um, uh, so, the, uh, and I think that the reason on the climate change uh, crisis and the, and the fact that we're heading towards uh, unprecedented um, uh, crisis in terms of climate change uh, and we could be reaching tipping points at any time. The reason that we can't take action is because governments are, are so intertwined with um, uh, fossil fuel companies. Uh, and uh, that goes for the Foreign Office. I can talk about the British context because that's most of the work I've been working on in the last few years has been on that. But the Foreign Office and MI6, for example, um, have um, uh, are basically operating uh, as political arms of uh, companies like BP and Shell. That becomes very clear in cases like uh, the coup in Iran when MI6 took out the democratic president of Iran in 1953 because uh, the Anglo-Iranian oil company had been nationalized by the prime minister. That, that's the company that became BP. So that was, that's a very obvious example, but that, ha that operates across the board and it's really not understood by many people that the state in Brit in the British context, but this, uh, this goes for most Western state, the state is operating in corporate interest and fossil fuel companies are majorly important part of the economy. So I think that we need to get, um, the state in and the government independent of corporate power. Um, and we need to get the information system independent of corporate power as well, because a lot we don't understand these things because corporations don't just own the governments. They also own the media explicitly. Apart from the BBC, every, um, major media outlet in Britain and, and across the world is owned by, uh, corporations. Uh, and they have, and that's, they don't operate in a benign sense in, in terms of the news media. Firstly, they're businesses, primarily businesses rather than news organizations. So they're primarily focuses to make money. Secondly, the structural pressures of being owned by a corporation and being a uh, part of that sector mean that filters operate on what information can get into the media. So it's very hard to have a clear eyed view of a corporate run system and how it really works when your only information you get about that system comes from a corporate owned media. So I think that we need to get, uh, 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 corporations out of the out of the government and we need to get corporations out of the media sector and then we can have a proper debate based on uh, real issues and then a real clear-eyed analysis of of the world um to, to bring about the end of fossil fuels any rational species would have would, would have done already but we, we're not even close to doing um there's a very very uh simple way of ending the climate change crisis which is coming and it's just stop fossil fuels immediately but work out a plan in a very very short term to get rid of them completely that's not even started so why is that and my take is because corporations own the whole thing and the corporations are only interested in profit and that is a structural thing um we talked before we came on air actually just a bit about how you need to do a system systematic analysis of 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 the world rather than base it on individual personalities or individual uh, characteristics and i think that's true and in the corporate sense it's it, the corporation is set up to make money for shareholders it can legally have no other uh, consideration so it, it's no it's no surprise then that um people within companies like bp ExxonMobil knew in the 70s and 80s climate change was an existential threat, was a crisis that was going to potentially cause the biggest uh, uh, threat to human life since we evolved into Homo sapiens. But they did nothing because their only uh, consideration was profit. Now, these aren't, not all of them would have been psychopaths. 
not all of uh, many of them will have kids and grandkids that are going to have to live in the world, but they didn't do anything. Now, why is that? It's because their only consideration within these uh, uh, structures, within these institutions, is more profit. So we need to let well, we need to get institutions with, which run only on a, a profit motive out of governments and out of the media, and then we might have a chance of solving some of these problems. Yeah, I completely agree with you. The uh, corporate takeover or the coup, as you and Claire call it in your book, um, is really, really revealing. I think, you know, I keep having these little moments though where I like witness just how disempowered everyone feels. And I feel like it speaks to the systemic problem, like the fact that you can't just pull one uh, lever and change everything. Like when I was in Papua New Guinea um, and I gate crashed the state luncheon with Macron, um, I got talking to some fossil fuel executives who didn't know I was a journalist. <laughs> And they were talking about how, you know, it might be too late in, in, with regards to the climate crisis. And like, maybe they didn't do it fast enough, but like, what else could they have done? And they were speaking as if it was just anybody on the street talking about this world, as if they weren't literally in the belly of the beast with the opportunity to change it. Yeah. And then later in the day, I was speaking to this um, guy who does like recruitment for Total Energies and, um, at that point, I by that point I told him I was a journalist and like my ex, um, my niche as well. And he was about you know my age, young guy, educated. I was like, why are you doing this job? And he was like, well, if I don't do it, somebody else will. Like, what what can I possibly do to change the system as it currently exists? And there was even an Atlantic article like six years ago that I read that was about all these like Silicon Valley. CEOs buying up bunkers in New Zealand because they're worried about the end of the world. It's like, do you know how much power you have to stop that? Like what? I think that's what's so interesting about like systems, like the fact that everybody's in it, even the people who seem to have like such an inequitable amount of power feel yeah. utterly helpless in the face of it to actually do something about it. And yeah. I won't, I won't go, I won't ask you the really horrible question of like, well, how do we go about this? Because it's incredibly complicated, but maybe to help elucidate what we could possibly do. Could you explain to us how it came about in the 50s and 60s? Yeah, well, it was, uh, so what we call the, the silent coup, which is the, the coup of corporations against uh, governments, um, started a long time ago in terms of it, uh, the battle between the corporation and the states. So just to give a bit of history, the first kind of what was called the joint stock company was created in, 19, in 1555 in London. It was called the Muscovy Company, and it was a it was a charter granted by the Queen uh, to for a company to to uh, for a monopoly on the trade route with Russia. And then this, that was how then how corporations existed. They got a charter from the Crown, uh, and the Crown was basically in control later the Parliament of that corp, uh, company, and they could uh, and they were subject to their caprice, so they could say one day we don't want to have that charter anymore. And that often happened, like the crown would just rescind it one day. So it was very clear who was in power at that time. Then as time developed, the corporate form uh, as an, an instrument became much more powerful and tried to wriggle free of state control. And that mainly happened in the, in the mid 19th century in Britain. And there were a couple of things that made that uh, really unleashed the corporation from the state. One of them was the fact that you stopped needing to get a charter from the state uh, or uh, the parliament or the crown. So uh, back then it was a privilege to to, uh, to create a company. And now it's a right, me and you, <laughs> or we can set up a corporation. Is, that's our right as a citizen. The other thing was they brought in limited liability, which sounds arcane, um, but it was really important in unleashing the corporate form because before the mid 19th century, when they enacted um, limited liability. If you invested in a corporation um, and it went bankrupt, they couldn't just take they, the money that you invested, they could take everything you owned. Right. Uh, you, you were liable for everything. So they could take your, uh, your house, whatever it was. Um, and that was a massive constraint on the corporate form because it, uh, it was a much higher risk to invest in corporations at that point. When they enacted limited liability, people could just invest in a company and they, if it went bankrupt, they'd lose the money that they invested. They'd be everything else they own is protected. And that's why you see LTD after corporations now limited, limited form. So those, there, there's plenty of others, but those were some of the, some of the examples of how the corporate form, uh, uh, uh became unleashed from the state. And then the book starts, um, our book starts basically at the end of the second world war. 
which was a kind of the age of the multinational, uh, as we commonly understand it. And the architecture, which was set down at Bretton Woods in 1944, um, when they created the World Bank and the IMF, and then later, a couple of years later, they created, uh, the general agreement on trade and tariffs, which became the WTO in 1995, but that all that was, that's the infrastructure that kind of ran and runs the global economy. And that infrastructure was set down effectively and and added to, to continue imper imperialism in, in a formal sense, because after the second world war, obviously there was a massive, um, uh, decolonization movement, countries across Africa, Asia, uh, got independence from the imperial powers, uh, that picked up particularly in the fifties and sixties. And these systems were built as a reaction of the uh, transnational economic elite to maintain control in those countries, economic control without the tools of formal imperialism. So they didn't have a, a garrison of troops in those countries anymore that could just take out a leader that they didn't like or wasn't threatening to nationalize. They needed some more sophisticated tools to, to keep the same control. And we started the book actually with one very good example of this created in 19, 1966 as part of the World Bank. Um, uh, and it was called, the, uh, it is still called the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes. And it's a system, a sort of shadow legal system whereby corp multinational corporations can sue states for enacting policies that they don't like. This was created in 1966 and that's not a coincidence. Six, that, that, that period was loads of African governments were getting, um, uh, 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 independence and, and often the leaders of the, of the anti-colonial movements, I'm talking about people who are fighting on the ground, British or whoever it was, people like Nkrumah and uh, Macarios in Cyprus, um, they were actually in power. They were prime minister and president. So this was, you can imagine the level of panic that there was in the imperial capitals when you had people who were actual guerrilla fighters that were becoming prime ministers and presidents who were inclined to nationalize, nationalize the resources of the countries, which had been raped for centuries. Uh, and use those resources in the, in the people's interests. So they, that was a massive threat to, yeah. to how the system. So the, the ICSID, which I mentioned is Armored World Bank and the system that it, 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 it created, which is called the investor state dispute settlement system was, uh, was set up effectively as a response to that decolonization movement. And we went to the World Bank archives in Washington, actually as part of the research. And they talk about it quite openly there about how, uh, why, why they set up ICSID and what, what it was about and about the decolonization aspect. Obviously, publicly, that wasn't what it was about. It was mm. all about development and helping countries develop. Um, because the argument for it was, okay, well, if a corporation is uh, uh, thinking about going to a developing, mar uh, developing market, it needs some... Uh, 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 Guarantee? Yeah, well, and recourse to an international yeah. venue where it can take take the country if they nationalize their asset. But of course, that's against what we're told is capital how capitalism runs, which is you take a risk if you go somewhere like the Congo because you might your mind might get expropriated, but you if it doesn't, you're going to get massive rewards. This kind of ensures you against risk. Um, and effectively, that I mean, the, the ideology on the system is rubbish. You don't need this system to encourage foreign direct investment, but that was. That was how it was sold. It was, uh, but the, the, the system has just exploded since the end of the cold war. And it's a massive part of the menu of policies, which is pushed on, uh, the developing world by the world bank. And the world bank is the most important development institution in terms of, uh, uh how it, its role in, in how most of humanity runs their economies. And I um, all come, uh, countries that sort of are integrated into the, the economic, the global economic system, Western-backed one, uh, I uh, have to sign these agreements which enshrine this system. And so I'll just finish with this. They, uh, the, the system is enshrined in free trade agreements like NAFTA, CAFTA. Uh, um, there were, uh, I don't know if you remember TTIP, which was, gonna, which was the proposed um, biggest free trade agreement in history, which was going to be between Europe and the United States. It, it got, it's on ice now, um, but it became... It, it, it kind of got iced because this ISDS system was going to be part of it and there was so much outrage. But that was kind of the only time that it's really got, got mainstream sort of uh, prominence. Sorry, just, just to pick up on that. Yeah, go for it. That was between Europe and the United States. 
And they didn't actually want to sign on the dotted line because ICIDS, which they have enforced on everybody else, was going to be... No, no, no. Both countries wanted it. I mean, both but there was massive um, activism against it. Right, okay. Um, And the activism focused on ISDS because they said, look, this is going to open us up to all sorts of um, potential suits from the United States and and other European countries. uh, if we enact certain policies. And that's what it's about. It's about locking countries into a certain policy spectrum. So it's about making sure they can't move. Like I mentioned, they want to, they had to create an infrastructure where you didn't have to do coups and assassinate leaders because you, you just wanted a system where they can't move, even if they had the predilection to nationalize something. And it's quite interesting that the, there's a, there was one major, um, thinker behind the whole system and it was a German banker called Hermann Abs, and he actually was close to the Nazi regime but after the Second World War he he said like he made this famous speech well it's not famous um, famous for you yeah we tried to make it famous but we haven't worked (laughs) yeah but uh, in 1957 he went to a meeting of industrialists in San Francisco pitching his idea for a global legal system where corporations can can basically enforce their right, investor rights against states. And he, he, he mentioned the coup in Iran, which I just mentioned in 1953. He, he mentioned the, the coup in, in Guatemala in 1954, again, again, against the democratic president who was trying to do a little bit for his people to the detriment of corporate interests. He mentioned the uh, uh, invasion of Suez, um, sorry, invasion of Egypt after the nationalization of, uh, the Suez canal by President Nasser in 56, and he was speaking in 57. So he was speaking the year after that with all these things had recently happened. And he said, we don't want to have to do these things. We need to create a system where these people can't move. So NASA, so NASA doesn't, won't, won't ever even think about nationalizing the Suez Canal because they'll know, get hit with billions of dollars of uh, legal suits from the companies that own it. And that's what's happened now. So for example, it's a massive way of trans, it's a massive mechanism of transfer of wealth from some of the poorest countries in the world to some of the richest corporations like Occidental Petroleum. There's a case in, um, in famous case in, in Ecuador where they won billions of dollars from Ecuador, which is a pretty poor country just for Ecuador doing, uh, enacting a few policies that they didn't like. There's a current case now in Honduras where a American company is taking Honduras to exit. Um, and suing them for $11 billion, which is a third of the Honduras' GDP for merely for trying to, uh, so the previous neoliberal US uh, puppet government in Honduras had enacted an SEZ law, which basically, and we can talk about SEZs later, but SEZs are these kind of corporate utopias. But um, the the current government in Honduras, which is a bit um, more independent, they wanted to get rid of the, this one SEZ and this company that owns the SEZ um, took them to, to, took them to exit for $11 billion. And Honduras doesn't know what to do because they can't afford that. Um, but there's enforcement mechanisms. So there's, they have to go and the case has to be heard in Washington. So it's a mess. And I'll just finish with this. So these are the cases that get to court. The other thing is that this is the shadow system, which has a massive impact on policymaking all over the world. Uh, even when cases don't get to court, because nowadays, and we saw this in internal documents, which we got through Freedom of Information Act requests, not just to uh, developed countries, but places like Guatemala. We we looked at um, what were the internal deliberations when a government is trying to uh, decide whether to grant an environmental permit, which might uh, in a in a in a place where the local community might be adversely affected by the operations, and nearly always now. The prospect of getting hit with one of these suits, because we're talking about billions of dollars sometimes, as I mentioned, is is one of the major priorities when they're deciding what policies to make. And that is a massive, massive problem. And it goes to the climate change thing as well, because there's a thing called the Energy Charter Treaty, which everyone should know about, which dozens of countries are signed up. And it enshrines ISDS. uh, And it's a way, and it's a massive... Um, uh, obstacle to governments taking action against fossil fuel companies because those fossil fuel companies can then hit them with these suits um, for doing things like not granting an oil exploration permit or or, or changing their uh, fossil fuel policies. And there's a case of an attack of a British mining co- oil exploration company called Rock, Rock Copper Exploration, which um, just won two hundred million 
euros from the Italian government for its uh, uh, policy of stopping uh, oil exploration on the coast, recent policy. So this operates across the board and it's a massive, massive way of corporations just clobbering states and, um, and it's a massive, oh, but, but it's, it's part of a whole system which was erected after the second world war, uh, and in the fifties and sixties, uh, I won't bore you with some of the other ones, but, but <laughs> oh, I'm but not bored. <laughs> you can be sure that this is like, this is just one element within a, it's one thread in a tapestry. Mm. Right. I've got lots of questions. Um, before we get into SEZs, uh, special economic zones, and also possibly the world bank, can you explain how this legal system sits within like national legal systems and like the, you know, the the international court, for example, in The Hague. Like, where 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 is this court, and how is it operating, and how does it seem to be operating out with that other legal system that everyone else knows about? Yeah. So uh, the main one that this is a system which is enshrined in these free trade agreements, but they don't don't have to be heard at the world at ICSID, which is the World Bank. Uh, there's there's there is a court, an arbitration court at The Hague. There's one in London. Uh, there's others in in Europe. But the main one is ICSID and what and how it operates. Is that in, in Washington? Yeah, in Washington. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how it operates is uh, that it, well, actually, I should explain how it operates because this is <laughs> insane. So if three arbitrators make these decisions, um, no, you, don't have, you have to have no qualifications to be an arbitrator. You're oh, so paid, you mean three people? Three people. So, and it behind the secret behind closed doors. So how it is the, the corporation will bring this suit. They'll say, uh, we want, we're taking you to exit for enacting this policy. That the three arbitrators will be appointed. One is appointed by the state. One is appointed by the corporation. And then they agree on a third. And the other day, actually, I was talking to a former exit, um, arbitrator. And I said, what's the point in the system? Because surely. The state one, the one that's appointed by the state always votes with the state yeah. and the one with the corporation always votes with the corporation. And he was like, yeah, that, 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 that always happens. I was like, well, why don't you just have one then that's agreed with it? Anyway, so that's the system. They agree with, uh, uh, they, and then they, 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 these hearings are behind closed doors. It's in, this is a very secretive system. Uh, it's nearly impossible to get documents about it. And in fact, the funny thing is, I mentioned we went to the World Bank archives in Washington. We were in the World Bank buildings. We were like, we might as well find out and try and get to Ix. Yeah. And we were, so we were going to people in, in the World Bank, just walking around going, can you tell us where Ixid is? Where is it? And most of the people, even in the World Bank, didn't even know what Ixid was. Mm. It's fifth branch. Uh, so it's, it's a massively underhand system because it's so corrupt and such a, uh, a, a, there's very little justification for it that they kind of want to keep it on the, on the download. Anyway, so they have these three arbitrators. The three arbitrators hear this case behind closed doors. Um, they decide, um, and they're paid thousands of dollars. And often, if it, we did look at, we did a sort of, we mapped out the arbitrators in, at Exit. We didn't do other courts, but they're often like, there were a bunch of people who were part of the George W. Bush administration, former corporate people. Yeah. It's, a, it's a racket, effectively. You get paid a lot of money to hear these cases. And governments can never win because even if they win the case, it costs millions in legal fees to the, to, to, uh, to these high, high, high value, uh, uh, law firms on K street in Washington, uh, they have to pay them. So even if they win there, they have 2 million off well, in some cases, more than that out of pocket, uh, just pay for lawyers. So that's that, but uh, the, the, even the even more corrupt part of the system is what's called third party financing in that there's boutique financial firms, which invest their sole function, uh, is to invest in these cases against states. Oh so, my God. so imagine the perverse incentives that creates, and they're not only loaning these government, these, these, um, corporations money to, uh, to, to pay for fees associated with the case. They're also, they give loans to, to expand. So in one case we looked at. The government, uh, th this company got uh, a, a mi millions of dollars from this boutique financial firm to expand its operations. And the collateral it was set against was this claim, in this case, against Bolivia. Um, so, so, and then, and how the loans work is they say, you don't have to pay them back if you lose the case. If you win the case, we take a percentage of the win. So when I, 
So if you're thinking of billions of dollars in some cases, so these financial firms are investing in the, in all these claims against governments, the, the, the incentive is now for corporations just to hit all the time, these, uh, states, because they can make, it's a massive, massive way, uh, uh money-making, uh, thing. And also it's very easy to, um, to, to, to find ways of hitting states with these cases, because there's a lot of what is called jurisdiction shopping. So if you're looking to bring a case against government, you're based in London, um, you can just set up a shell company in a in a country that has a bilateral investment treaty, which enshrines the US, ISDS, open a shell company there, then hit them through that shell company with, with a case. That's happened. In fact, that happened. I'll just finish with this because this was maybe the craziest case we looked at. We went to South Africa and uh, to look at a case where uh, an Italian granite company and investors had taken the South African government to uh, ICSID for enacting black empowerment policies after apartheid. One of those policies was that uh, companies had to give a percentage of their company back to, uh, to historically disadvantaged people, so black people, and this Italian company didn't want to do that. So they opened the a shell company in Luxembourg and hit South Africa with this uh, suit to uh, to overrule this policy um, through uh, the Luxembourg-South Africa Bilateral Investment Treaty. They That case was never actually heard in the end because they settled out of court. The South African government said, you don't have to abide by it because they just wanted to keep the case closed because they and below the radar because they didn't want to get hit with loads of other streets uh, mm. from other companies. Mm. Though barely anyone in South Africa knew about it, but this so it's a completely corrupt system. Like I mean, even people on the inside find it hard to defend, especially mm. with third party financing, because it's just it's like you remember. Uh, I'm a bit old now, but maybe like 15 years ago, there was like quite a lot of interest in vulture funds. It was one of the, and vulture capitalism, and they decide you know where people where these funds would buy distressed debt. Right. So I don't know, a really poor country wanted to, uh, 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 couldn't pay their debts. So these firms buy these debts and then just hammer these countries, just take all their international uh, assets and blah, blah, blah. Became a bit of a uh, mainstream issue for a while, but this system hasn't, and it needs to, because they needs to, there's no debt justification for it. It needs to be shut down completely. Yeah. The massive uh, uh, attack on democracy, and it's a massive mechanism through which the richest uh, corporations in the world are, are, are rinsing some of the poorest countries in the world. I am horrified, um, although not surprised, I think, <laughs> given the state of everything, but I'm horrified. I wouldn't, I just want to go, I'm just, I'm getting stuck on the, the image of these like three arbitrators. So you're telling me that um, these corporations can get third party financing to sue these like, you know, the, the majority world. Um, which is totally contrary to development, which is why everybody is everywhere and supposedly, you know, still going into uh, developing countries. Um, and they will take these countries to court because this country with their sovereign autonomy is an act of policy that they don't like. And that case will be seen in front of three people who are not lawyers or no. judges. They might be, but they don't have to be. But they don't have to be. Yeah. Just three random yeah. people from the sphere of whoever those people are, and you know they operate like the elite, essentially elite business, and then and then they get one vote each. Yeah, and that's one, it. Yeah, and they're appointed by the two parties. As I said, one is appointed by the state, one is appointed by the corporation, and they agree on one. How is it's, that legal? It's mad. The whole system's insane. I actually was just in Paris to to do some events for the book and one a former exit lawyer came to one of the talks and i was talking to him afterwards he was like I just, he said to me i agree with everything you you say and it is insane like the, the the system is completely corrupted and he said that i had to get out he left there maybe 10 years ago and he said that the only reason he went into it was because he had massive uh, he wasn't an arbitrator, but he was a lawyer that worked on the cases. Um, and he said the only reason he went into it was he had massive bills from law school and he yeah. had no choice, but he, but he said, I'm so glad I'm out of it. And there is no defense of it. That's why it's so secretive. Yeah. Because people, and that's why like someone like you, you know about it. Um, 
you, I mean, you don't know much about it and, and you, you're okay with a lot of these issues and it's the same across the board. No one really knows about it. And that, that's by design, you know, because it's indefensible. Yeah. They don't want people to start, start uh, being interested in it. So yeah, it's crazy. I'd, 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 I'd encourage everyone to look in because as I mentioned earlier, it's not, it, it's an, it's an attack on democracy. And the other point is it's coming back to, to roost in the, the countries that created it. Um, so as I mentioned, this German banker was kind of the ideas man behind it. He actually linked up with a British Lord called Lord Shawcross and they wrote something called the Abs Shawcross draft convention in, uh, 1959, which eventually was basically the template for exit in 1966. Um, but now like we're the, 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 Euro the rich European countries, which, which created this system to, to enforce their control in, in the developing world are now getting hit with cases. So we went to Germany. And looked into a case where Germany was getting sued for billions by a, a Swedish power, energy company called Vattenfall, uh, who were running en um, nuclear power plants in Germany. And after the Fukushima disaster, Germany decommissioned all their nuclear energy. So Vattenfall said, we're going to sue you for billions now, because again, you're enacting a sovereign decision uh, policy. You should be allowed to decommission what, whatever you want and change your en energy policies. But they, but they did that. They also, Vattenfall had also taken them to ICSID for another, for its coal-fired power plant, which would, was raising um, uh, the temperature of the water around the, the plant. And they took them to uh, uh, one of these arbitrations to say, well, actually, we, this is an attack on our uh, investor rights that you want to in enforce this environmental regulation. And the, the, the country lowered the regulation. So Battenfall got their way. So it's a massive way to strong up. To be honest with you, for me, the much more important part of this is not the cases that reach court. Of course, they're outrageous. And when you talk about billions of dollars going from Ecuador to Occidental Petroleum, it's an outrage. But for me, the much scarier thing is the policy making chill that yeah. this has all over the world. Uh, and the fact that they're all, it's all enshrined in these free trade agreements and bilateral investment treaties. And, and I think this was another major revelation for me anyway, looking at it was I started looking at these free trade agreements and bilateral investment treaties. And you're sort of like, okay, these are not about trade. And when we talk about a tr free trade agreement, free trade, right? You understand it as the uh, uh, people are saying it and it's about mutual lowering of tariffs. Mutual lowering of tariffs. It's all about uh, um, greasing uh, trade between the two countries. That's maybe a little part of it, but they're hundreds of pages, a lot of them. And it's all about legal mechanisms for corporations to enforce their interests in those respective countries. And that's why ISDS is included in it. It's not about trade. It's, it's about investment. Uh, like it, it doesn't make uh, free trade agreements. It, free trade agreement is a massive misnomer. And I don't think it's a coincidence. It should be called a corporate rights agreement, you know, um, uh, uh, and actually in South Africa, what was quite interesting was they said after the fall of apartheid, we talked to people who were in the ANC government after the fall of apartheid and they said Mandela would go to somewhere and they would sign, uh, they'd tell him to sign a bilateral investment treaty at the time, present it as just a bit of diplomatic goodwill. Just come on, we're, we're friends now, sign this. And then they were getting hit with these suits later on that they didn't know where this ISDS system was enshrined by. And you hear that all the time. And we went to Myanmar, Burma as well, when it was coming out of the cold, when they thought democracy was going to be uh, developing there. And uh, uh, all these bilateral investment treaties enshrining the ISDS was a massive part of what was being enforced on Myanmar, Burma. So it was just about bringing them in and integrating them into the system. And you saw that massively. And a major reason I did mention that the system has take off, taken off after the end of the Cold War, a major part of that is because the former Soviet bloc countries in Eastern Europe, they were all bought into uh, this system and assigned these agreements, which enshrined ISDS. And if you look into sort of the breakdown of what regions are getting hit mostly with these cases, Eastern Europe is one of the major ones that's getting hit with loads of cases. Um, but it's, it's massively important for, for us now as well. If there was a, there was a case that Britain and France lost, which was bought by the company of, uh, which runs the Eurostar because they weren't doing enough to, um, to deal with a refugee problem and it was impacting their business. So, yeah. No one knows about that case either. 
How, how, sorry, what was the logic? How was it impacting their business? Well, it was make it that there. I don't know. I don't know specifics. It's not the case. I've actually looked into that much. But it was they, their argument was that it was impacting. I don't know on services and stuff. That I don't know if they have to cancel stuff. And it was making. Uh, I don't quite know. But I know they won the case. That is amazing. So, uh, so what is so what does this mean then? Okay, see, we've got um, in terms of fossil fuels and the fact that we need to ramp down fossil fuels yesterday. Um, in order to survive the coming century. What does this law mean then? And how can we look at it or use this knowledge to like better understand the decisions that governments are making? Because obviously in the UK and in the United States, like Biden, Sunak, quite different, not very different, but quite different, but they're coming under fire for continued expansion of um, oil and gas licenses. But, and not to give them an excuse, but can they do anything else whilst this legal system still exists? Well, it's hard to hard to take back existing licenses if they wanted to do that with this system, because um, uh, they can get hit with these suits. But um, in terms of new ones, uh, it locks them in again. Like even later down the line, if you get a government which doesn't look likely in Britain, but um, if you get a government which wanted to cancel those contracts, and in fact, Starmer recently didn't he say that Labour won't cancel any contracts? I don't know if that decision is informed by the fact that they know they'll get hit with billions of dollars of suit. But the, it's an element of it. It's not the only element. Of course, there's also the fact that there's corporations have found many, many ways of investing and governments and making policies based uh, on corporate interests rather than citizens' interests. I mean, in the States, it's campaign financing, all sorts of things. Um, uh, there's many mechanisms here as well. Like the people don't understand the British state large parts of it are set up, taxpayer-funded bodies are set up to promote corporate interests. On the topic I cover, which is main, more foreign policy, military stuff, um, there's a whole section of the Department for International Trade called the Defense and Export Security, D-E-S-O, Defense and Export Security Organization. And that is a taxpayer-funded unit of the Department for International Trade. It was actually set up by the Labour government in the 60s which is all about promoting the arms industry, private arms industry, which is primarily BAE systems. So we're paying to promote them. And that is really, that goes across the whole part of government. You, we, I, I really, really think, uh, advise people to look at this part of um, the British government website, which is called ACOBA. Um, ACOBA is the committee that, um, uh, so if, you, if you're a public servant, uh, politician, minister, uh, intelligence chief, whatever it is, and you leave and you want to join a corporation within two years, or uh, you have to get uh, um, approval by a COBA. And I've never, ever come across a COBA refusing one, by the way. It's quite interesting. I want to do a story one day of how I think a COBA might have 100% represent. So it's like, you but they do say things like you can't, uh, uh, so the former head of, um, MI6 left in 2014, Sir John Sawyers, and he joined BP in 2015. And I think the COBA recommendation said you can't lobby the British government on behalf of BP for two years and you can't use any information you got in MI6 to help BP. Yeah. But anyway, you see, in a, if you look at the COBA documents, you just see how the revolving door operates. And in fact, there's basically no barrier between the state and the corporate world yeah. and they're all cashing out when they leave. Uh, and that's part of the career trajectory. Everyone knows it. Um, but uh, that has a massive impact because the, uh, ISDS is one element of it, but look, there's basically no differentiation. And, and, and in fact, MI6, uh, just to be specific about it, is quite an interesting one to look at because it's a security organization. We're told, I mean, we're told a lot of rubbish about it. But a lot of it's about James Bond and how it's like a sexy guy going and saving the world, fighting the baddies or whatever. But MI6, like, well, I think it was three, three MI6 uh, chiefs. And they're the only ones we know about. We know the names of. You can imagine what the other ones are doing. But they all joined the fossil fuel industry after leaving MI6. And MI6's stated role is to protect the British people. What's Britain's greatest security threat climate change yeah oh so they don't care they, it's all it's all it's all rubbish but what, so they all cash out in the fossil fuel industries so Sawyer's joined um dp the year after he left uh 
MI6. Um, uh, Richard Beerlove, uh, who was uh, who was the head of MI6 during the Iraq uh, debacle, he joined uh, an American company called Cosmos Energy and has made millions there. Um, uh, 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 Sir John Scarlett, um, who was the author of the dodgy dossier, um, he joined uh, Equinor, um, the Norwegian uh, oil company. So there's no there's no difference. So I, so ICSES is one element of it, but I don't think there'd be any. Uh, I think even without that, they're, 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 people need to understand that these people are that there's no uh, there's no uh, barrier between state and corporate power. And that's part of the argument of the book is that there's a massive conceptual mistake that people make. And still make even on the left, which is that there's a these are two adversarial power centers that duke it out based on their own interests. There is that doesn't exist. Corporate that they are working together, and they and the state works in the interest of the corporation. And everywhere I went on the ground, that's what I was hearing is people. I was because that this was kind of a revelation for me because I still had a kind of maybe naive belief that governments uh, had some uh, mechanisms through which they had to respond to popular pressure, but. When I was going to places like Colombia, particularly and Tanzania, and talking to people who were being on the, on the um, sharp end of corporate uh, attacks, whether it be taking their land or, or polluting their environment or whatever it was, I'd, I'd ask, um, but why? Uh, I get the corporations effing you over, but why isn't the government supporting you? Why isn't the government defending you against corporation? That was a silly question to them. They all said the court, the government works for the corporation. Yeah. Government is a immediate, immediate intermediary between yeah. a corporation and the resources of the country. Yeah. Uh, and that is pretty much how it's all over the world. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we can't fight back against fossil fuel companies, because if we had a democratic government, which was independent of corporate power and responding to popular pressure and popular security needs. Of course, they would enact policy. They would never be granting new oil exploration licenses. Mm-hmm. It's suicidal. It's suicidal. People, uh, so, so why are they doing that? And in my opinion, they're doing that because uh, all these different mechanisms have been created, which mean that they can't, as structurally, a state and a government now can't respond to the needs of its citizenry above the needs of corporations. And in this case, it's very clear what needs to happen, but it happens on many other issues as well. Yeah. NHS being another one, like we are turning our health care system, which is, has been for a long time, the, the kind of a beacon in the world and, and looked up to around the world. We're turning it more and more into the United States system because, uh, which is, which is seen as one of the worst in terms of outcomes and how much it costs. We're turning it into that system. Why? That's not because the government has looked and said, we need to do this for our people because we, they need X, Y, Z. They're doing that because they're making but uh, they're, they're opening up to corporations and corporations have wanted to get their hands on the NHS for decades since it was, it's a massive cash cow. It's the same with um, pensions in the United States. Everything that is publicly owned that has some way of responding to population is being taken from us and handed over to corporations. And that's because corporations are running policymaking now. ISDS is one way, but there's plenty of others There's that, there's basically no, I, I, that's why we call it overthrowing democracy. I, I just don't think that we live in a democracy yeah. in a sense that we understand it. And I'll finish with this. I think you mentioned earlier about people being confused and not understanding and, and, and reaching out for different ideas because everyone can see that the politicians on the TV are not making the decisions. Uh, and that's a problem. And I think lacking any kind of sophisticated or at least analytical framework, which is based in the real world, it's very easy when you understand that the politicians aren't making decisions to reach out for a small cabal, an individual, eventually like a racial group. It could be like, if you look at the history of Nazi Germany, there was massive amounts of conspiracy theories before the Nazis came to power. And it's very, this is why it worries me now when you see the amount of conspiracy theories around, you wait for a demagogue to come along and just mm. a charismatic one and say it's all the fault. We're kind of in a, a discourse which could allow that. But I th- I, my take is it's corporate power, that people know instinctually that the political system is captured, but they don't know how and they don't know by whom. And for me, the answer is simple. It's the corporations. They own the whole show now. And we need to get the, uh, kind of get an understanding of all these systems. It's much harder, obviously, because me explaining this probably, it sounds boring to a lot of people, but 
um, it's much easier to come along and say it's all the fault of, I don't know, the Jews or gays or blacks, whatever it is. That's a very, very easy argument you can make. Or Muslims, you can just say it and someone understands that viscerally. Mm. Whereas sit down and be like, actually, it's much more complicated than that. It's, there's this and this and this and this. So that's what we're up against. I'm obviously trying to think about um, the the how, you know, how to stop a thing. Because as you say, like this particular moment in history is so chaotic and unpredictable and unstable. And the confluence of like so much wealth and power going to a small section of the population that also have their hands on the narrative. It's very, very dangerous. And typically what happens at this point in history is, yeah, you get an authoritarian coming along and being like, it's their fault. Vote for me. Um, what can citizenry do? Okay, so educate themselves for sure. But is there some kind of like, I don't know, loophole? Where, what we're seeing at the moment is a lot of like citizens suing fossil fuel companies. You know, we had that a case in Minnesota, this landmark case where these young kids took this fossil fuel company to court and said, no, you know, and it's happening in Germany as well. It's happening in places around Europe because I'm assuming that like corporations can't sue citizens within national like is there some kind of protection of still being a citizen within a state that can like take action against these sort of you know um horrific corporate powers around the world at least on home territory yeah it's a good question it's quite interesting isn't it and this came up when we were doing the research is that we said is there a parallel mm. um legal system where uh, as which it should be right. Which is if there is there's the corporate one. If a if a company like um, Chevron comes and dis literally destroys a whole community of, of thousands of people in in say Ecuador, is there a supranational venue that those citizens can take that corporation to? It doesn't exist. Mm. But activism works. Like firstly, on this system, particularly. Um, it's about raising awareness, like you mentioned, because it will evaporate if enough people know about it because it's indefensible. It's not like other more sophisticated systems where there's a much more sophisticated um, justification for it. Mm. Often I don't agree with it, but SEZs, for example, you can follow a thread of understanding how they think this might work to develop a country, blah, blah, blah. With ISDS, it's indefensible. It's indefensible that the, the, the single argument they have about it increasing foreign direct investment doesn't work make sense it's purely about so we need to raise awareness that the system exists uh what the results are uh the attack that uh, we need to uh, the attack on democracy and uh and and make sure that um it's not i mean we could uh, you could argue like there are countries fighting back on a country level so i mentioned south africa after that they got hit with that case from the italian mining company um, they they tried to cancel all their bilateral investment treaties, which is trying. Mm. And then in Bolivia, um, and so in the, in the 2000s, during the first so-called pink tide, which was the left democratic governments taken in, three countries tried to withdraw, or did withdraw from the ICSID convention, of Venezuela, Bolivia, and Ecuador. They were, the, in Ecuador's case, soon after uh, Correa left, the, the Lenin Moreno, who took over from him, re-signed up to it. Um, so, so they can only sue you if you're part of the convention or if well, you're no, that's, that's the thing. It, it was more a ceremonial thing like that. You right. mentioned was, uh, you can still be hit with right. these cases, but it was a part of the, the, right. the, they wanted to extricate themselves from the systems. And in fact, like, so the interesting thing about ICS, I've been saying that we need to raise awareness here, but if you talk to any government, which is trying to go against corporate policies. They all know about it. It's like a major consideration. So when I went to, I was in Bolivia last year to interview Evan Morales, the president of Bolivia from 2006 to 2019. And he, uh, they got hit with countless cases because nationalization was a massive part of their program. Eventually they were praised by the World Bank and IMF for their economic policies, which were the opposite of what the IMF and World Bank tell you to do, but that's another story. But he, but, um, they had to pay a lot of money and ex and arbitrations. They were hit with countless arbitrations, including from a British power company, uh, which owned a 50, there was one called Rural Lake, which owned a 50.01% stake in the main electricity company in Bolivia. It's always interesting that the foreign company owns 50.01%, just enough that we can overrule the government. Um, but anyway, so he nationalized that. They hit him with a case, uh, a, a, a ISDS case, which was financed by a third party as well. They eventually won, Bolivia had to pay millions of dollars 
but he was talking about it as a massive impediment to him, his program when I interviewed him. And, and the, the other thing that they, these people mentioned, cause I interviewed Correa as well, he mentioned the same thing was that these, these, these agreements, as I mentioned, are about locking countries into a certain system, right? And they're clever. So they have these things called sunset clauses within those agreements where they say that even if you cancel the bilateral investment treaty, it doesn't come into effect for 10 years. That's part of the, they're called sunset clauses. So what they're hoping is that you might get a liberation government or a government which wants to do things for their citizenry or corporate interests, but they'll probably be gone in 10 years. And yeah. by the time, so by the time the cancellation happens, you'll have another government in where they'll just reverse it anyway or cancel the cancellation. So it's very, very hard to extricate yourself from the system. And that's by design. And they, they talk about it openly on the, uh, uh, the sort of 1% and the people who design these policies. I mean, like Thomas Friedman, what did he call it? The golden straight jacket, you know, uh, their idea is this is golden and it's, it's a great, you need it for development, but it is a straight jacket. It's, it's made to, it's meant to make, as I mentioned in the fifties and sixties, so people cannot move. And I'll just finish with this. Well, very uh, clear case of this was when we went to El Salvador again, El Salvador was being hit by a Canadian mining company for, for not, uh, granting an environmental permit to, uh, to them to dig for gold. And we went to El Salvador to, to look into the case, to go to the mine site, to look, interview the local community. It had become a massive, massive issue in El Salvador. And in fact, everyone in El Salvador knew about the case, like on the ground. People, everyone we talked to would mention CIADI, which is ICSID's acronym in Spanish. Oh, interesting. It's quite an amazing thing. So it is possible to raise awareness. But anyway, it was, for them, it was a massive attack on their sovereignty. And um, we talked to ministers who were serving, and they were part of the FMLN government was which came out of the marxist guerrillas in the 1980s so serious people you know uh, and but they were their policy program was basically non-existent they didn't they were doing nothing to to really kind of change el salvador and make it work in the interest of its people rather than transnational capital and we were asking the minister for the water for water who was actually a really good guy and we were saying why are you why are you so moderate why are you doing nothing and he said we can't move every time we want to enact a policy we're told we'll get hit with a billion, we've been told by our advisors we'll get hit with like a million dollars in suits by these international companies. If we do something else, we'll get hit by a massive a cut to our US aid program, which is effectively another e effort to, mm -hmm. uh, to lock people. So, and, and, and he was saying explicitly, like after we lost the civil war in the eighties, we were re we were integrated into uh, this system where we signed all these agreements enshrining ISDS, we signed these massive aid agreements with the US where they basically just keep us on life support and the whole of our economy is based around needing that uh, aid. We signed loans with the IMF, all this stuff that means that 20 years later, you actually get a democratic government, which is elected to respond to its citizens and it can't. And he's like, and he, for him, it was like, it was obviously he was pissed off about it, but he, it wasn't a surprise to him. He said, yeah. we're locked in, we're locked in. And that's the way it works. Um, but to, to go back to your question about how you fight it, um, but Bolivia is one example, but, but unions, I mean, that, I know it sounds like a cliche, but everywhere I went, like in, and not just unions, because unions exist, powerful unions exist, which are not independent, which are basically working for corporations and states. I saw that as well, that they've been captured a lot around the world, but we need build union power because there's two power centers in a society, really. There's a state and the, the corporation. Uh, and we organize labor is the only third power center that can be built that's on the same structural uh, ability to, to influence that the other two have. I mean, the state should respond to us, but it doesn't. So we need to build up organized labor. And it's been smashed, especially particularly in Britain since the 80s. You know, like uh, I talked to my mom and dad, and they say that in the 70s, 1670s, everyone knew the names of the union leaders in Britain. They were like big mm -hmm. people. And now like, I, I know most of them, but most people don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mick Lynch recently, but, yeah. but, but, but that was that Thatcherism, uh, and, and neoliberalism smashed the organized, smashed organized labor. And really that was a very clever thing today because it's made them the, the enactment of their policies much, much easier and actually was a prerequisite to enact it. So we need to rebalance our society and everyone needs to join a union and more importantly, make those unions independent and responding to workers uh, and responding to people on the ground. If I can, 
I know we're coming up for time, but if I can just pick your brains really quickly um, on Labour and Starmer's government. <laughs> yeah. One of my favourites. <laughs> because um, it's very, how do I put this? I am bad for staying on top of like what's going on like nationally in terms of like party politics because I just I find it exhausting and I find it and I find it really dull as well actually. Right. Um, but we've just had the reshuffle. I saw that you tweeted that this is like now you know a Blairite cabinet essentially, and uh, people like you and Ash Sarkar and Aaron Bastani are like really sounding the alarm on like this Labour government cannot come into power. But what does that mean? Does that mean we have to have another Tory government? Like, what what are we looking at here, um, and what do we do about it? How do we get a real how do we get a real Labour government into power in this country? Yeah, um, well, I, I'm like you in the sense that I, I got really involved in it during the Corbyn years just because I felt it was important. But now I'm just yeah. so bored by it. I try. I I have recently got more into it, but I, just, I don't want to. It is really really dull. But um, yeah, I mean, I. I mean, the, the Labour Party are advertising the fact that they're, they're the same as the Tories. I don't know. It's not, it's not controversial to say that. If you look at what Starmer's saying and his ministers, they keep on saying, we are going to keep the, the child benefit cap, which is yeah. going to starve have, uh, countless kids. We're going to not do a wealth tax like the Tories. Yeah. We're going to be harder than the Tories on benefits. Like, it's not me saying it, it's the Labour Party saying it. Yeah. And that's... I, uh, my, my, my belief is that the problem is not Starmer or Rachel Reeves or any of these clowns. Um, the problem is that Britain is not a democracy and it can't, and, and it's set up like that. The Labour Party has, I mean, there's been periods where it's done good things like, uh, the, the creation of the NHS and stuff like that, but it's been captured by the British oligarchy, the British oligarchy, the small section of Britain, which really runs the whole show, uh, and made to work in their interests. And I think a very uh, clear way of uh, this was something I kind of suspected, but I think that the Corbyn years really revealed that because out of all the forces that were reigned against him, which was pretty much the whole British establishment, because yeah. remember he's got had really good policies on fossil fuels, yeah. on taxation, on foreign policy. He didn't want to. He wanted. He was the first manifesto that said we're going to stop arming the Saudi dictatorship and arming apartheid Israel. Um, really, I'm not a moderate stuff in you know, a national education service. Stuff that any kind of liberal should support. Anyway, who were the main people that brought him down? I mean, obviously, there was a massive establishment attack, but the Labour Party itself was maybe the key player. And how interesting is that? Into, especially in 2017, when he, uh, he, they could have won. There hadn't been trench warfare against him for two years. He would have won. And so the Labour Party had to reveal their true role, mm. which is to give the appearance of democracy and to give the appearance of choice well actually they've kind of sacked off the second part of that now in the summer but essentially to give the appearance of democracy uh when there is none and it's a very very clever way of doing it because i think starmer will win and the liberal take on all this is like for years they told us we just need to get rid of johnson we just need to get rid of they're a particularly uh, awful bunch and that's true they are and their policies are awful but there's going to be a real, but, but a lot of people believe that things are going to be, get better under Labour. And there's, my take now is that there's going to, people are going to go nuts when they, when they see, and it will happen pretty quickly. It's been advertised now, but I think it'll be even worse when they're in power because the pressures from the right will be even more acute. People are going to see that we don't have a choice and that's by design. And what do you do in that context? And there's a lot of debate now about would you do we need a new party? I don't know. I'm I'm kind of ambiguous about. It. I, I think that there's the power of the British establishment to destroy any alternatives is so um, strong. Yeah. And there's never been a left party that's done anything to the left of Labour. Having said that, look at UKIP and how it changed the political debate without getting into power. Yeah. Uh, so maybe, but this is something I don't know. But I think the discussion should start because I'll just finish with this before Corbyn. I always thought because of this analysis that Labour Party was not going to ever be a vehicle for progressive change in Britain. And in fact, that was, uh, uh, that was by design. Corbyn won, survived for five years somehow. And I was like, well, okay, maybe I was wrong about that. Maybe the Labour Party can be used, but, but actually in hindsight now, I think that my initial take was right. And I think that that Corbyn years proved that because they would have brought him down at some point, even if it got into power. They will, uh, th for them, a Corbyn government, 
for this is for the Labour Party establishment, a Corbyn government enacting and an anti-imperialist one as well, because maybe that for me that's the red line. Uh, that is much more dangerous than a Boris Johnson government or a Conservative government. That's what I believe. Um, for the establishment. For the establishment, much yeah. more, and also the Labour Party itself. Yeah. Because uh, um, you you look at what what Starmer who Starmer is like, you you realise pretty quick he's 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 kind of just like a, a emblematic of what the Labour Party is and what it's become. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I I have there's no magic bullet, is there? I mean, we haven't had any, we haven't had a aggressive government for like what death, forty years. I mean, I don't even know, I don't know much about what Harold Wilson and Jen, Jim Callaghan did, but I don't think they were great either. <laughs> so yeah. we we kind of uh, start. I mean, to be honest with you, before Corbyn, I always went to Latin America to get my political kids because you yeah. see real liberation governments there, as I mentioned, who are doing real things. To, yeah in the interest of the people. That's never really happened in the UK in the same way. But um, I think that maybe that there's going to be a major, major crisis of democracy under Starmer. I, that, my take now is that he won't last that long, but I think it will have opportunities. There will be a moment of crisis where opportunities are going to arise and the left needs to be ready with ideas and uh, uh, organizationally to take advantage of those. All right. Matt, my final question for you is, who would you like to platform? This is going to sound a bit cheesy, but I'd like to platform a lot of the people on the ground um, that I speak to about these systems because they understand the people on the ground understand the systems a lot more because they're not like they don't go through the ideological institutions we do, like the universities, yeah. media systems, where we're told all these lovely uh, 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 all this propaganda about how the system works, and you have to kind of believe it to. To get higher into that in, in the intellectual industries, uh, they don't have they, they didn't go through those institutions, but also they're at the receiving end of a lot of these systems, and they and there's no way you can't understand it. You're getting killed by a paramilitary which has been hired by Chiquita in the banana company in Colombia, but you know how <laughs> how corporations operate, or you're getting your land taken from you to from for a mining company in in uh, in Tanzania. So those people are really smart of battling against the odds or really powerful forces and no one ever hears from them mm. and oh that is because like uh, they don't a lot of them don't speak english they don't have access to the internet um but if i had it in, in my if i had a dream world where i could choose which voices were it would be people on the ground um who are victims of these systems not the people in air-conditioned offices who are running these systems who I do believe, having looked into this for a long time and interviewed a hell of a lot of them, do believe what they say they believe. Mm. Um, but the point is, it's very convenient that they believe that stuff because they don't want to wake up every day and look in the mirror and think, I'm a monster who is helping the uh, destruction of the planet in service of corporate interests, do they? No one wants to think that. So they, they, they definitely easily imbibe all these ideologies. So I'm... Um, Ignore them. And they're the ones that get platformed, of course, by the corporate media and the mainstream media the whole time. That's part of the problem is that their, their ideology is, is stuck, is, is, is the discourse. So we need to uh, we somehow uh, platform the people on the ground. But that's not easily done. I mean, yeah, as, as you know, I'm a journalist too. You're a journalist. Like, there's, a, there's a lot of impediments to getting to people who are on the ground. But we, but we should focus on trying to do that. Absolutely. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.